The Washington Post's Gary Arnold called this movie a comedy of unavoidable fits and starts. Janet Maslin of the New York Times said it was a shrewd but very likable movie. And BBC's Almar Hafildeson called it one of the best comedies of the 1980s, featuring a cast at the height of their powers. On this episode of Ruined Childhoods, we decide the fate of Trading Places. Which one will it be? It's the Ruined Childhoods Podcast. Greetings, Starfighters! Tony the Tiger? Tony the Tiger. Tony Why the not? Tiger. Tony yeah. the Tiger. You got a little frosted intro this morning. I always look forward to seeing what you're going to do with the greeting Starfighters. You and me both. <laughs> Starfighters, welcome. It's Rune yeah, Childhoods. It sure is. How are you, Dan? Um, I'm doing well, John. How are you today? Uh, I'm good. I, I took the day off from work. Uh, I had a very busy couple of weeks and I just was like, you know what, Thursday and Friday, we're recording this on Thursday the 8th. And uh, so I'm like, okay, Thursday and Friday, taking them off. It's going to be great. So went for a nice little hike, got some stuff done around the house. Uh, Yeah, it's been good. It's been good. We're doing this. Yeah. Yeah. Nice cap to the day. Nice end. Let me tell you. So I'm walking back from my hike. And so I live in a an area of Portland. I was going to say Philadelphia because I have Philadelphia on the mind from Trading Places, our movie this week. Uh, but I, I live in Portland and I live really close by to a amazing hiking trail. And from when I leave my home to when I return home, it is like exactly one hour. So it's like if I have one hour and I'm like ready to go, great. I get a nice hike in, it's lovely, it's not super busy, and uh, get some exercise, get some fresh air, it's great. And on my way back today, I pass by this kid, I'd say he's probably like 18 or 19, really like shaggy hair, kind of like hunched over the way that, you know, some... In in Portland? (laughs) In Portland of all places. And he's like kind of like hunched over the way that kind of like awkward teens when they're walking by themselves tend to do and listening to I, black by pearl jam on repeat on their of disc course. man i mean i would imagine this kid has never seen a disc man i promise you that and i noticed that he was wearing this black hoodie and on the front it says columbia pictures and i'm like huh that's odd and then I just figured that it was like a promotional thing where like on the back, it would have like another, like like a movie or something listed on it. Some Columbia Pictures movie. I don't know what Columbia Pictures movies there are because Columbia now. Recently? Well, Sony. Right. Because Columbia is Sony. So I don't know what, what it would be coming out now. But I look at the back and it's just a vivid Columbia Pictures logo. Like the front is just the text version. And then the back is like full color logo. 
I feel like I would want that in reverse, like the logo on the front and then Columbia Pictures on the back. And I, I would want it, I would want it like mid 80s, like Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters Columbia logo. Columbia logo would be great. Only if you could hear like the like theremin kind of yeah. playing the, the Elmer oh. Bernstein score. Elmer Bernstein, who also scored Trading Places, Dan. Oscar nominated Oscar for nominated. his Trading Places score. The only Oscar nominated. This is true. I, 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 we did not bring this up intentionally to tie into Trading Places, but it just happened to work out that way. Just happened. Just happened. So uh, anyway, I saw that on my way back and I was like, God, tell Dan about that. Because that's and random, a pretty cool sweat, random, sweatshirt. Uh, not the first time the, uh, the theremin has come up today, by the way. Putting okay. together, well, you know where, uh, so as I've discussed before, I, di- I direct theater at the high mm. school where I teach, and we have been, myself and the other director uh, who runs the program, we have been trying to figure out what to do to keep the program going while we're not, while schools aren't opened here mm-hmm. in Seattle. And for the project that we've been discussing, and oh, you know what? We will have announced it by the time this episode airs, so I can say it. We are going to be doing like radio play adaptations of Twilight cool. Zone episodes. And I was watching one of them. I was looking, we have one script, I think, that I'm like 90% sure I want to do. I want to do two episodes because you can't really ask people to sit at their computers watching teenagers pretend to be radio actors. Uh huh. More than like 45 minutes. Um, mm-hmm. So two episodes and I was watching one of the episodes and I was thinking about it. I was like, man, it would be badass, especially if we're just going to be showing like everybody on their in their like video conferencing box, but looking like they're in like a radio booth mm-hmm. and we're going to be showing, yeah. you know, the people doing all the sound effects and everything. And I was like, if we had a theremin player. Oh, that'd be pretty cool. If we had someone and and the head of the of the program is the type of guy who I was like, I'm going to throw this out there and I'm not going to be surprised if the answer is yes. But I was like, do you or someone that, you know, own a theremin? <laughs> and of course, he shot back. He was like, I think I might know someone. <laughs> so what could also work aside from like the theremin? And I don't know if this is what Elmer Bernstein used in for the Ghostbusters score. Um, I mean, I saw Ghostbusters live uh, with the the orchestra playing. I wonder if it's like a singing saw. Have you ever seen someone play the saw? Oh, yeah. It yeah. has that kind of like yeah. weird, like wobbly vibe. Yeah. Which sounds like, it sounds, that, that sounds like in, in Beetlejuice when Gina Davis is doing, oh, doing the ghost thing. My God. Absolutely. <laughs> Sorry. It just, I said that and it. You're talking about Twilight Zone. There's well, the episode of the, you know, there's the segment from the Twilight Zone movie directed by John Landis where Vic Morrow was, you know, and uh, you might have uh, heard us talk about that one on the Bad News Bears episode. And uh, that got John Landis kind of in a, uh, I don't know, kind well, of. John Landis of, was, no, he was tried. Right. For for manslaughter and because it was Vic Morrow and two kids. Right. Who died? So, and this was like right after Trading Places. Yeah, uh, Twilight Zone the movie came out the same year, and then in fact it was that trial, or I think it was, it it might have been later in the eighties, but because Eddie Murphy mm. didn't testify on John Land as like as a character witness for John Landis, 
Landis was really bitter with Eddie. And I, and that's why I think this happened after coming to America. Cause I think their relationship was still pretty solid on coming to America. But I heard that they had their differences. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think it was, there was Beverly some... Hills cop three where they were just right. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It, kind of incredible that they worked together still, even after there was bad blood. Yeah, but that was the uh, so so. There's yeah another connection, another weird Twilight Zone connection. Yeah, I and yeah, well I had to. It's we're talking, we're literally talking about spooky Twilight Zone things. We are literally talking about the Twilight Zone. Yeah. yeah. So Dan, you and I have been getting a lot of texts from uh, from people today. Yes. And and yesterday. Yeah, because I uh, I'm telling you, Whoopi be listening to the podcast. What up, Whoopi Goldberg? Whoopi, because if you allegedly, are apparently, there's all of a sudden interest in a Sister Act three, and talks have begun again. How does kind of interesting? We did an episode about how we'd love for that to happen, and and spooky, I don't know spooky. if anyone was, has been really been talking about it. Yeah. And then and then we talked about it, and now Whoopi's talking about it, and now everybody's talking about it. Yeah, so, so Whoopi, we know you're listening, so, you know, if you want to give us some cameos, wouldn't be opposed to it. Not in in the least. At we will, any- our payment can be a disc man, a pencil, and a mug. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just, I'll take the pencil and the mug, honestly, because. <laughs> yeah, right. I'll take the pencil, that's a badass pencil, and I'm not a pencil fan, I am notoriously anti-pencil, in fact, in the classroom. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Like, I got rid of all pencil sharpeners in my classroom because I didn't Own want your mistakes. You didn't. Well, oh, well, yeah. Well, no, that was the, <laughs> honestly, the explanation was I was like, first of all, you can't erase and it's going to look good. Otherwise, you're going to sit there for five minutes, wasting five minutes on erasing. And that's why I don't use erasers or whiteout because I'm like, no, I want to see whatever you crossed out. I want to see the process. Yeah. So I'm all about the mistakes. Yeah. Uh, do you have any one more things for our last episode? Oh, gross, gross point, blank. point blank. Definitely. Yeah. So um, and mostly just because in another just kind of in a turn of, of maybe uh, John and I really not being as aware of what was of of what was that what was going on in the moment that we recorded this. But uh, after we recorded the gross point blank episode, it was. John, John Cusack is on this new Amazon show that's getting a lot of hype, Utopia, yeah. and John Cusack He's goes rounds. on WTF, and yeah. um, I listened well, our to focus, that interview. In all fairness, our focus was Dan Aykroyd. It was on Dan Aykroyd. It was on Dan yeah. Aykroyd, but yeah. It's October, baby. It is October. And uh, fittingly enough, because of Dan Aykroyd's fascination with the uh, the paranormal. The occult, yeah. Yeah. So, and, and tis the season, but yeah. So John just wanted to kind of like throw it out there that John, John Cusack is kind of making a little, I don't know if I, I can, you call it a comeback. He's been here for years. He does Thank talk. You. What I thought was interesting though, is he talks about like some of those movies he made that we talked about that were like the straight to Netflix streamers oh, yeah. where it's like John Cusack with Bruce Willis or Nicolas Cage. And yeah, it was kind of like he's like, you know, you go it, you go in, you shoot a movie and you have no idea what what it's going to end up being. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, when it comes to John Cusack, Nicolas Cage movies, I'm a Con Air guy all the way. You're Cameron Poe. That's right. I'm Larkin. Hello, Larkin. I got your message. Where are the troops? They'll be here. They'll be here. Uh-huh. In a minute. Listen, Poe. 
Can I lower this? Go ahead. You gonna lower yours? Sorry, boss. But there's only two men I trust. One of them's me. The other's not you. Oh, yeah. Well, I haven't seen Frozen Ground, and I'll be honest that since listening to this interview, I was a little... Uh, my interest was Intrigued. slightly peaked. Well, but... you know what? Maybe we'll have to do a Con Air Frozen Ground back-to-back double feature episode. Uh, you know what? That's another discussion for another time. <laughs> we are talking about... We're not talking about Q's acting. We're just talking about acting. A- acting. I'm A-Y-K-T-I-N-G. T-I-N-G. T-Y-N-G? Acting. yes. Brilliant. Yes. Acting, that's what it is. Letters yeah. cannot capture it. So, right. So you were just talking about how John Cusack has been kind of coming up in the moment. Uh, I don't have anything else that I wanted to bring up necessarily about Gross Point Blank, other than it's just such a good movie. And I really appreciate uh, the comments that people have left on our social media posts about it, because yeah. clearly it is a beloved movie. People remember a lot of the lines, and it's just it's just so fun. many. The energy so many of that movie lines. makes me really happy. That's the great. Yes, John. That's that's the thing is that right now, if you need like a little dip into the nostalgia pool to get your smile back, gross point blank. Uh, I know it kind of it did the trick for me. Like I was yeah. ha- I was really happy watching it and listening to it. Not just the music, but the dialogue. And that mm-hmm. brings us to to Dan Aykroyd. As I've been oh, doing a little geez. bit more, more research. Yeah. I was listening to another podcast recently, and they happened to bring up Dan Aykroyd, and it what they weren't even talking about Dan Aykroyd movies. Dan Aykroyd just came up, and they made a comment about how it seemed like after, geez, what were they even talking about? Like maybe even after the Ghostbusters movies. You know, he just kind of played like an everyman. And I was like shouting at my, you know, headphone, my phone. I was just saying like, but gross point blank. Come on. Like he was certainly more than just like your everyman. And thinking about it more, I I really thought like, man, I would have loved to have seen Dan Aykroyd play more characters, not necessarily just like Harry Grocer, but more characters with that dark side but like yeah. that you know and i know he did uh the couch trip where i think he plays a psychiatric patient where with walter Matthau is the psychiatrist oh, I don't know. um but that was a, a comedy a uh, michael ritchie i think directed that one. oh yeah yeah I, i'm pretty michael sure ritchie candidate of yeah. candidate in bad news bears bad news bears yeah yeah um so I, I think that Dan Ac- so to see Dan Aykroyd play and he's done dramatic, but to see him play a villain, it just made me really interested in seeing him imagining yeah. what he could have done as a villain. I mean, like even in a in a Batman movie. Oh yeah, I th- I think that he's totally capable of you know showing a lot of different sides, like with and, the right collaborators, with the yeah. right, you know when he's working like with with Cusack. And what's so impressive, and I know we talked about the dialogue and it and this carries over to trading places, but I had not known that Dan Aykroyd not only has um struggled with Tourette's, mm. but also Asperger's. Oh. I didn't realize that. So uh yeah, I mean that's per Wikipedia. So mm. grain of salt. Yeah, but but still, you know, um you could easily get that 
taken down if it was sure no i that's very interesting and you you have to wonder how maybe that works in his favor in in certain ways well it makes me wonder it definitely makes me think about certain characters like in a different like 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 ray stance like characters that Mm. he really crafted from the ground up yeah um so head Belder, yeah, no, exactly. Mm-hmm. But it, um, I'd be interested to hear more about like his process and how that's affected his process, especially because he, I would imagine that that someone with Tourette's, unless they really got, you know, we're in. This is maybe me speaking from an ignorant place, but his rapid fire dialogue in so many m- movies, not just Gross Point Blank, Dragnet. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I mean, well, what, it's kind if of you like think about Joe Friday, you know, there, there's a certain quality to his character where you can see, you know, somebody playing that character who does experience autism, uh, maybe bringing something really unique to that character. Here, what undercover rock you crawled out from? There's a dress code for detectives and robbery homicide. Section 3-605, 0.10, 0.20, 0.22, 0.24, 0.26, 0.50, 0.70, 0.75, 0.75, 0.75, 0.75, 0.75, 0.75, 0.75, 0.75, 0.75, 0.75, 0.75, 0.75, 
which includes his job, home, and butler, Coleman. At the Duke and Duke Christmas party, Winthrop crashes dressed as a dirty Santa and attempts to plant drugs on Valentine, calling out the injustice to the Dukes. They see that he is removed from the party at once, but not long before Valentine catches them wrapping up their bet, a wager of $1, and it is revealed that they plan to ditch Valentine after the new year once their bigger plan comes to fruition, the unlawful theft of the agricultural report for frozen concentrated orange juice, with which they will corner the market and make a ton of money. Valentine finds Winthorpe and they team up, with the help of Coleman and Ophelia, to get a hold of the agricultural report first, replace it with a phony, and stick it to the Dukes where it hurts the most. The wallet, wink. After a carefully orchestrated heist on board an Amtrak train, the next day on the trading floor, Winthorpe and Valentine play the Dukes like a fiddle and corner the market on frozen concentrated orange juice, costing Dukes $400 million, resulting in them being sent into poverty and leaving Valentine, Winthorpe, Coleman, and Ophelia with enough money to chill on the beach, throw mama from the train style. So, Winthorpe is Dan Aykroyd, Billy Ray Valentine is Eddie Murphy, uh, the Dukes, Randolph Duke is Ralph Bellamy, and Mortimer Duke is Cocoon's very own Don Amici. Academy uh, Award nominee. Academy Don, Don Award Amici. for Cocoon, yes. Uh, after oh, right. a yeah. a long hiatus com- coming into trading places, uh, Denholm Elliott is so good as Coleman, Jamie Lee Curtis is incredible as Ophelia, and um, we also have Paul Gleason as Clarence Beaks, who I didn't mention in the synopsis. He is the the goon who the Dukes pay to set up a whole bunch of things in their scheme. He, Plus, he's like their he, fixer. He's their fixer, and he's also the person who is tasked with delivering the agriculture report to the, I don't know, I, I don't know exactly where he's, because he's going to deliver it to... To the, the person who's announcing on the news. And now for the news. Under heavy security, the crop estimates for next year's orange crop are being delivered from Miami to the Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Louis! Louis, that's him! That's the guy who paid me to talk dirty to you! In charge of security is Mr. Clarence Beeks, head of Lindhurst Security. Clarence Beeks! The douche just gave that guy ten grand! Ten grand? I saw an outlay on the payroll to him for 50000 Mortimer said it was for research. Yeah, research, and I can get his hands on that top-secret crop report two days before it goes public. My God. The Dukes are going to corner the entire frozen orange juice market. Unless somebody stops them. Or beats them to it. Eggnog. Yeah, so from what I understand, they they took the actual one forged one very quickly that said the opposite information and did a little double switcheroo and then pretended to be him and and handed off this yes in a little deep throaty you know garage uh transaction uh it's it's a wild movie and there there's so much that goes on in this and and there's a really beautiful way that each character develops in in their opposite trajectories. Valentine kind of becoming this refined, kind of brilliant traitor uh, who uses more than just the facts to give advice on how to trade. Well, yeah, he's a hustler. Yeah. 
What are what are traders? Traders are hustlers. Well, that's what when when the dukes are explaining to him what commodities trading is all about. He's like, oh, so you're bookies. Yeah. Now, uh, some of our clients are speculating that the price of gold will rise in the future. And we have other clients who are speculating that the price of gold is going to fall. Uh, They place their orders with us and we buy or sell their gold for them. Tell them the good part. (laughs) Uh, The good part, William, is that uh, no matter whether our clients make money or lose money, Duke and Duke get the commissions. Well, what do you think, Valentine? Well, it sounds to me like you guys are a couple of bookies. <laughs> I told you he'd understand. No, he totally gets it. That's the thing is, is yeah. like their whole thing is they think like, oh, they can, if he just like spends time and, and lives in a nice place, he's going to figure it all out. But he, he knows it. He just hasn't been given the opportunities to the same opportunities that somebody like Winthorpe has had his entire life, a white person who has grown up with every opportunity handed to them. So here we have a movie all about white privilege Mm -hmm. before anyone was using that phrase. Yeah, absolutely. And about systemic racism and how Mm -hmm. systemic watching this movie again. And I'm like, man, I I wish like retroactive Oscars. I think I would give Trading Places best screenplay because not only it's pretty brilliant, not only is that intricate like thing like which I I never really understood what they were doing. Exactly what's happening about it. Yeah, right. Well, if anybody wants to actually learn about what's happening, there is a fantastic episode of the I believe it's an NPR podcast called Planet Money. And Dan, have you heard of Planet Money? It's great. It. It's a it's a finance podcast, and there's an episode, I believe, called The Eddie Murphy Rule that talks all about this and it goes into explanation about the actual Eddie Murphy Rule, a an, an actual real-life rule that was put into place to because what they were doing was actually legal. Yeah. Like it's wrong, but like insider trading and commodities happens all the time because information just gets out. Because, you know, it's not like it's corporations, it's farmers. So, you know, so the information gets out and using that information, it's really difficult to kind of crack down on that. So there was a rule put into place called the Eddie Murphy rule that actually makes what they did illegal. Yeah. Pretty amazing. I mean, I had to like read a a couple of times the explanation. If I can listen to a podcast about something instead of reading about it, that's great. Oh yeah, no. I, I, if it's not about like movies or or pro wrestling, but this was about movies. <laughs> oh, I guess. Yeah, and it's okay, not like I go. was listening to it to be able to explain it to everybody. I was listening to it to like get just a better context. But it is complicated, and they actually have real commodities traders on there. One of them that actually deals in frozen concentrated orange juice. I don't know if it's. It's definitely orange juice, not yeah, oranges, at, at, but orange juice. Frozen no, 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 concentrated orange. Yeah. You know, I mean oh. this actual guy. Oh. So, um, yeah. So he was saying like people in commodities trading refer to trading places all the time because it is so accurate. It's it's amazing. Well, it's uh, the screenwriters, I think, like spent time with traders. They and would have had to. Really, really yeah. studied them. So, but watching this movie it, from the perspective of 2020 
and just everything that we've learned from a reflection on the past, especially in terms of race relation. Mm-hmm. And the message of this resonates so much more. And I think the setting being in Philadelphia added an extra impact to me because there was a research study done by W.E.B. Du Bois mm. in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. He used Philadelphia as a, you know, it was like, this is where I can get a good, you know, sampling of data. And he lear- what he learned was that because of the labor unions not allowing black members, the um, black laborers couldn't really get good work. They could only get non non-union jobs, which mm-hmm. were few and far between and and not good and there's no protection. So what happened was because of the high unemployment, you have uh, you have a high poverty rate, you have poor um, access to medical care, which leads to illness. Yeah. So on, and then you add all that together and you end up having crime because you've got the desperation that leads to it. And it's all this cycle. And then the unions say, well, if you look at the black neighborhoods, they're all, they, they get sick. So they're unreliable or they're criminals because look at the crime rates. So they're using a problem that they like created or enabled and using using that to keep it going to propagate totally. it so that's why i look at at billy ray valentine and i'm like he is the result yeah oh and yeah this movie does have there's there's some controversy in it because of of the scene in which dan Aykroyd is in blackface right yeah but yeah just because by that point you've also built up so much message and equity with these characters and also the fact that it's eddie it's eddie murphy's plan right i i wouldn't say that it gets a free pass because it certainly didn't need to be that there could have been other ways that they hatched their scheme. No, and what we're that's ta- true. What, that's what true. we're talking. What we're talking about is a scene on the Amtrak train when they are doing the old switcheroo with the agricultural reports. Uh, Valentine, Winthorpe, Coleman, and Ophelia are all in disguise because they have had interactions with Beaks before, so he would recognize them. So there's also a costume party going on on the train for New Year's, which makes it a little bit confusing because they are not supposed to be in costume. They're just supposed to be eccentric people. So like Ophelia is this Austrian German, but also she's really Swedish. Swedish because she couldn't, because Jamie Lee Curtis couldn't do the Austrian accent. (laughs) Yeah. And then you have um, Eddie Murphy, who is, I don't even know how to explain. West African. West African. Yeah. Like, I think he, I think he's, uh, I, cause I think he talks about like where he is from. He talks so fast, it's hard to keep up. And yeah. then Dan Aykroyd is, you know, this guy who he's met at a conference, I want to say. I certainly hope there's enough spears on the train for me. Nenge! Nenge Yomboko from Cameroon. Do you remember me? It's Lionel Joseph. Lionel! 
from the African Education Conference, right? Yes, Simon. I was director of cultural events at the Haile Selassie Pavilion. I remember the pavilion. We had big fun there. I mean, it might have been the only way that they could figure out to establish some type of relationship between the two of them. But also, Beeks would have recognized... Winthorpe, I guess probably so. More. If he was not, I am not disguised. making excuses yeah. for black. He could have had a beard on or something. And look, also, he figures it out pretty quickly. Oh, I mean, yeah, not quickly well, enough, but but that and that leads, but that leads to some of the the funniest stuff in the film that involves Jim Belushi as the as the party goer in the ape costume, and right? Yeah, Al Franken and Tom Davis. Yeah, that scene, that entire sequence is where things really, and this is not a train joke, but goes off the rails. <laughs> and it's like, it's a completely different movie at this point. At this point, it's just a straight up comedy. It really, it, There's a major shift in tone because right before this, keep in mind, you have, you know, a dirty, drunk Santa, aka Winthorpe, oh. uh, like trying to kill himself shoot himself in the head and but that's the low point but that's 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 right still... but it goes it goes from low 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 and then you have like one scene in between really where they're kind of catching him up on everything and then all of a sudden they're doing this giant scheme on the train not to say that i don't like it but it is definitely like it's pretty wild you know there's these two dumb baggage handlers who are in charge of a gorilla and then there's this whole train car of people in costume having a party. Because it's New Year's Eve. It's New Year's Eve. Yeah, but costume parties. So, I, why not? I understand. I feel like okay. the I feel like the costume the party. Setup. The costume party is like the. It's like they worked backwards. They're just like, what's the ending for Beaks? Well, he needs to get fucked by a gorilla. How are we going to get him <laughs> fucked by a gorilla? All right. Well, maybe if there's a costume party on the train and there's somebody that gets in this, he gets in a gorilla suit and the other gorilla becomes really horny. I don't know. Like, there's. It's almost like they worked backwards. And there's like, I don't know, a costume party on the train? Sure. Why not? I don't know. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> I, but I thought you also needed that because that's also right before the end. So you kind of need to see Beeks get his comeuppance because Beeks is really. And boy, Beeks, does he. I mean, oh, okay. The most despicable character in the movie is probably um, whichever one Don Amici plays, um, Ran yeah. Randolph, I think. Or, or is he Mortimer? He's Mortimer. Mortimer. So he's the most despicable one. He's the one who, when his brother is like on the floor having a heart attack, goes, fuck him. <laughs> right. And I mean, which is even, so great. I love even the way though, he delivers that. Right. And even though Randolph or Ralph Bellamy would have said the same thing, Don Amici is the one that says, like, no, I would never hire an N word. Yeah. No, he's the, he's, he is, even though they're both awful. He is consistently right because it's worse. like because the question is like so what do we do with Valentine? This is after the bet is all done. They're talking about getting rid of him, and it's like Billy Ray Valentine like has been making you guys so much money. Like he's actually legit, like really, really good, and he doesn't have you know the the attitude as uh, that Winthrop does, but can't keep him because he's black. Well, and it, yeah, it comes down to the whole, you know, like the hiring pool and that when corporations 
make excuses for not having uh oh we hire the best person for the job yeah no we hire the best people for the job of course so yeah but maybe the best people for the job aren't even applying and like they got they got the best person for the job because he's stumbled into it like well yeah yeah totally so i i don't know this that that scene in the train is wild i appreciate it it is it makes the movie i don't know it kind of just turns it up a few notches and it also it also gives us one of the great you know memes or gifts that gets passed around at new year's merry new year Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. The whole thing is great. Plus, also, the entire time, you probably just want to see uh, Eddie Murphy doing an Eddie Murphy thing. Because at this point, you know, I don't... Did 48 Hours already come out? Yeah, yeah. So... Like, yeah, six months earlier. It had, like, pretty much just come out, but we haven't really seen the, like, SNL Eddie Murphy on screen and in this scene, you have him doing his like Eddie Murphy thing. You see it at the beginning of the movie when he is kind of this con artist, you know, homeless guy who's trying to, he kind of makes it seem like he has no legs and he's blind and everything. And so, but the the rest of the movie, he's just a commodities trader. <laughs> you know, there's really nothing very like wild Eddie Murphy about him, really goofy. But then you get that in the train. You and get it a little bit in the the jail, like there's little bits oh, of it here and there, like yeah, but that's still I still consider scene. that it's not be- it's act one, so well, no, yeah, and he's not yeah. doing it like he's not doing a a character, like you see him, he does a little like he does a little, he throws in a little of the like Stevie Wonder when mm. he's playing blind. blind, yeah, yeah, which you know it's just I don't so used to seeing him him doing that, but uh, right, but he you yeah, know, he doesn't. Yeah, and yeah, he doesn't so, really do, like, characters until... Right, until you get to the train scene. So it's, like, giving the people kind of what they want. People, Anybody who's familiar with Eddie Murphy at that time is probably wanting to see something like that. And they get Yes, it. and you know what? When I think about Eddie Murphy, and I think about Eddie Murphy doing characters versus Eddie Murphy as, like, as Billy Ray Valentine or mm-hmm. Axel Foley... Mm-hmm. I prefer that. I prefer 48 Hours, Beverly Hills Cop. Beverly Hills Cop, yeah. Um, Trading Places, mm-hmm. Eddie, Eddie Murphy. Uh, you know, Distinguished Gentleman is a boomerang, you mm-hmm. know, to, to get to some of the late, the later ones. But, and I, you know, I love the the Nutty Professor is, is really funny. Oh, but totally. I like Eddie Murphy better when he is that, just that wise ass, smart aleck doesn't follow the rules and gets by his own way. And this movie gives you every different Eddie Murphy that you could want. Yes. Yes. And, and I think that it, it's, it really helps that it shows like what we were saying before, like it shows him given the opportunity, he is able to really be an excellent commodities trader. (laughs) Like he just instinctually, he is just good at doing yeah. that. And so what's I, interesting is yeah. it, it oh sorry to, to interrupt you go ahead. Oh no, so it's fun to see him being like a really smart guy, not just well, like a buffoon. 
So then who really wins the bet, Randolph or Mortimer? Because it is kind of in his nature. That's what I was thinking too. Right. Because it's, (laughs) is it Randolph? Wait, whichever one loses. Randolph is the one who wins because he bets that put in, in opposite circumstances that the environment would raise Billy Ray oh, up and would yeah. bring Winthorpe down. And and it's like Winthorpe just has to resort right. to But crime. I don't think that it's the it's not the environment though, because he's not in an environment that would lead him to, into that world. You know, he's with Ophelia, who is, yes, she is a sex worker, but it shows her in a way that we don't see sex workers in films you know, at this time, you know, we've seen like taxi driver, you know, prostitutes and things like that. But in this one, she's somebody who's just like really trying to get out of it as quickly as she can. She does things on her own terms. She doesn't have a pimp. She is a smart business person, but she didn't have the opportunities to, you know, excel in life. So she's doing it the way that she has to do it. And And she's got a plan. She has a plan and she, and I love the scene when like the guy comes to her place with the flowers and everything to like take, to take her out in quotes. And I, Winthorpe is sick and she tells the guy to go away and she's like, I'm protecting my investment. And she's just like, you know, comforting Winthorpe. Well, and so there's another one who was not given the right circumstances to succeed in, in Winthorpe's world. But when, when given those opportunities. Yeah. No. And I, I think that it's total, it's all nature for, for Winthorpe because he is the one that was, you know, put in a position where it's an easy path to, to success. And when that is disrupted, his nature is to act out and, Mm -hmm. and he goes to his like animal instincts to get that back, which is it's nature. Well, I mean, and we, of course, you know, we know that it's a combination of, of both really. Well, for the, for the purposes of this bet, I'm willing to say that. No, but for the purposes of this bet, I, I would agree. I think it, it, it. Is ultimately nature because you couldn't just take anybody and and have them survive as a. I wouldn't like you know if you put me in in you know Winthorpe suits for a day and and took me to the Duke's office. I wouldn't have a clue. No, I wouldn't no. have a clue. I wouldn't know what anyone was talking about. No, they'd have to give you the the whole training session where they're just like, and pork belly is what. Uh, bacon is made yeah. of and that's what you oh. would have in your bacon lettuce and tomato sandwich on a bacon lettuce and t- <laughs> i love that and the eddie murphy the, like those the couple look at the moments camera. in the movie when he looks at the camera oh <laughs> it's so and the ralph bellamy's delivery on that line is so oh my god good. yeah so yeah ralph bellamy and don amici oh, are so good are excellent in those awful roles and um i oh. i think it's it's a good opportunity to talk about kind of the casting of this movie and kind of like what this movie really did for the cast. You know, it brought Don Amici out of obscurity. He had been very successful early on and then just kind of like disappeared and they had to like track him down. They, everybody thought that he was dead and they found him and got him to be in the movie. And then of course he he was just in Santa Monica hanging out, but like nobody was offering him film roles. So everybody just assumed that he was dead. What a waste. Yeah. yeah. Until, oh, and, and then, then he Cocoon also got, happened. He got his Oscar. And then he did Harry and the Hendersons. 
That is also true. Famously, Sasquatch. Just kidding. So uh, Dan Aykroyd, who had been in a few things before this. Blues Brothers. Blues Brothers being probably the the most famous. uh, 1941, uh, Neighbors. Mm. But like kind of wasn't really hitting all that much. And then this came out and it really launched him into uh, a, a very successful trajectory. I mean, Ghostbusters was right after this. I don't yeah, know if Go- it was the actual next one that came out, but Dr. Detroit was somewhere in right. there. I'm not sure. This um, is the movie that uh, got Eddie Murphy his deal with Paramount that got him in all those movies for that long stretch of time. Was it, was it this one? It wasn't 48 Hours? I believe it was this one because 48 Hours, I think, was like it had tested poorly and it was during production on this that like things really turned around for him. Um mm. Oh, well, at least because 48 hours would have come out when they were making this. Right. Yeah. Because it came out, I think, winter but, 82. Right. But yeah. from what I read, this is the movie that really catapulted him, uh, at least in the favor of, of Paramount, getting him that multi-picture deal. Jamie Lee Curtis was in, get, they, they were very reluctant to hire her because she had only done like horror stuff before this, the first two Halloween movies, a couple little things here and there. And she New really Year, wanted New Year's Eve or something. Yeah. Like that. She just like really didn't want to be pigeonholed. And they reluctantly gave her the opportunity. And then because of this, she was cast in A Fish Called Wanda. And uh, I mean, she's been well, so then- good in so many things. And then what? how did I I can't believe I had never made the connection that when they were in My Girl together yes they had already been in trading places yes together. I also watched My Girl and My Girl 2 uh wow. to kind of complete the Dan Aykroyd Jamie Lee Curtis partnership and okay I'm just going to tell you it's almost as if my tear ducts have been just like dormant for years and years and years. I watch my girl and they have awoken big time. Niagara oh. Falls. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, but yeah, so Jamie Lee Curtis, another thing about this movie that it did for her is it gave her her signature hairstyle. She has oh. the, you know, the short haircut. Yeah, she's got the, sh- the short haircut. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, that's true. She doesn't have that in Halloween. So no, um, no, I. Uh, Paul Gleason, I mean, he this wasn't necessarily like catapulting him into anything huge. Denholm Elliott had already, you know, been in Raiders and Raiders, so many yeah. other things. So, oh yeah, 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 yeah. But um, and then Paul Paul Gleason, by the way, if people are unfamiliar with him, you might remember him as the print the principal. You mess with for the, the dean in yeah. You get the horns. Breakfast, Breakfast Club. Club. I mean, yeah. of course, he's in many many other things, but. Uh, most famously Breakfast Club and I would say Trading Places. Those are his two biggest roles or best known. Yeah. And uh, at least for me, Denholm Elliott, it's this and the Indiana Jones movies that he's in. Yeah. Not uh, a room with a view. That's not. Not your... as much. Not as much. No? But it's funny because as soon as I saw him watching this movie and I probably haven't seen this in 10, 15 years, maybe. I, you know, I saw him on screen and I just felt comfortable. There's something about Denholm Elliott that just makes me happy. And he's awesome because he's on the, he's on the, the side of the good guys. You know, he's been hired by the bad guys and just kind of had to do his thing. But 
he comes around. You don't really see too much of a shift in him, but like as soon as it becomes clear that he's got to do Winthorpe, the right thing. When Winthorpe comes to the door and oh, Coleman has to tell him, yeah, like yeah. you see it in his eyes and right. it's a really nice moment for Daniel yeah. Elliott. Yes. Oh, Coleman, could you please let me in? I'm, I'm having trouble with my key. Who are you? What do you want? Coleman, just unchain the door and let me in. I'm in no mood for jokes. Coleman. There's no Coleman here. You've made a mistake. That's that's really, really heartbreaking. And Dan O'Malley just does such an awesome job. Uh, yeah. yeah. Great cast. It's got, it's got oh, this, uh, it, it, this movie, I think it's paced so well. And there is this great balance between there's there's actual character development and real relationships between the characters and not just you know Ophelia and and Winthorpe but there's in fact the only relationship in it that feels totally fake is at the beginning Winthorpe and his fiance oh right well i mean ju- but that's it's that's what it's supposed to be oh yeah oh the when, scene where he goes to the tennis club or the squash club oh. or whatever it is and uh, she's like with the other guy then. Oh, they're awful. With Todd. Todd. And they have their little like barbershop quartet thing. Oh, God. Oh, it's so God. painful to it's watch. It's so terrible. You just want to smack them. <laughs> and she stepped on the ball. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I don't believe it. Ah, there you are. I think I'm going to be sick. Don't worry. I'll handle this, Pookums. Oh, Todd, Harry, Andrew, Philip. I realize this looks completely awful, but I just wanted to assure you, my friends, that I am completely innocent. I'm going to fight this thing till the end. Someone is out to get me, and I know who it is. The important thing is that I can rely on you, my friends, as character witnesses. Uh, I'm going to be defending myself, and, um, well, I wondered if you could see your way clear to perhaps advance me a small loan until the hearing. Frankly, Winthorpe, and I think I speak for all of us, I think it shows incredibly bad taste for you to come here and embarrass us all like this. I believe I'm still a member of this club. Nobody wants to buy your drugs here. Louie, why don't you just go away? And it's also just painful to watch him try to, like, you know, explain to them, like, there has been a misunderstanding and I can prove it. It was blah, Angel blah, blah, Dust, blah. PCP. Yeah. <laughs> that was a pretty good act, right? That was pretty good. Thank you. I, I that was I never tried that before. But yeah. I, and it's uh, also just going back to what you said about it feeling so natural with Dan Aykroyd and Jamie Lee Curtis. You know, this very you know, unlikely pair that you, from what you would assume, I uh, same goes for my girl where, you know, she's this like hippie, uh, cosmetologist. She's a Sexy. beautician yeah. and he's an undertaker and, uh, they, they fall in love. So it's kind of like, I don't know. There's the nature again. Doesn't it's matter very, necessarily they just, what they, you do. They just have great, Great chemistry, you know. They really do, and it's yeah. it's funny because it's not one that you would 
imagine would come across on screen so well. Right. But it well, really is. And, and that was, I had commented on the last episode about, or I think it was on the last episode, about kind of the believability of, of that relationship. Yeah. Um, Cusack but and the yeah. driver. Oh no, no. I, th- maybe it I, I, I remember at some point saying something to you, maybe it was on the podcast, maybe not, but about how, how you buy the relationship with Jamie Lee Curtis. Oh, sure. In, in trading places. Yeah. And I had said that without thinking, oh, like, of course, because in my girl, they, yeah, they do have that great chemistry and. I, I, it's hard for me to think of them as the same just because they're, it's it's such uh, different eras of their careers. Did you just catch a fly with your bare hands? I attempted to. Are you at the vice presidential debate? <laughs> this is uh, what are we? The day after that? It's it's the so. day after. So so that that you know we we haven't we haven't hit a hundred million fly jokes. But yeah. um, well, I said now, now, now we have now we have yeah no that that was it that was it uh, that was the one no uh yeah it it was oh boy uh, I didn't I didn't watch it but then I just looked at Twitter and it's like up oh, there and it is. saw everything and I was just like what is happening <laughs> like oh my how does shit keep getting so like is David Cronenberg directing this oh uh, yeah. I, and then of course yeah that's the fly I said David Cronenberg is a director that I thought I was just pulling out of my head, no but no it was there's no. a reason for it There's a real uh, Dan, so do you rem- oh i was gonna ask you if you remember the first time that you saw trading places um no it would have been high school i mm-hmm. got into a big eddie murphy phase yeah you really did i was listening to oh i had delirious memorized like my senior oh, year yeah. of high school i had delirious memorized i had most of raw memorized i had uh yeah not all of it that that i would ever repeat again oh but- god no Um, well, I mean, and and it's because these tapes were around our house that like, you know, they'd end up in my cassette player, my Walkman. And I'd listen to this stuff as I was like falling asleep at night, like all of your like, you know, comic relief tapes and stuff like that. But definitely Eddie Murphy tapes and stuff, you know, just I had that. I would just fall asleep with relief cassette. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I had that. So all, I was I was thinking about that because there's jokes on that comic relief tape that I still think about that I oh, still remember. There's the one where Dennis Leary, not Dennis Leary, Dennis Miller, Dennis Miller, says like I just flew in L.A. I love Louisiana, and I think about that all the time. Uh huh. I think so. great Paula oh, Poundstone. Great Paula Seven. Poundstone. Mm-hmm. I think of the Stephen uh, Stephen Wright oh, got Stephen. pulled over for speeding. The officer the officer goes, "Why were you going so fast?" Uh, or like, "Didn't you see the speed limit sign?" I don't believe everything I read. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen Wright's the best. Stephen Wright is in that, and Whoopi Goldberg has well, yeah a, fa- a phenomenal set. Yeah, but I I I actually I'm thinking of having like those. I want those cassettes. I I. Don't know what I would play them on, but yeah, I know, right? I'd find something. I yeah, I wonder if all of those are available somewhere. But yeah, so I didn't. I've looked on Spotify um, and Amazon Music for Comic Relief, and mm, I can't find it. But no, my my question for you because yeah. this takes place in and around Philadelphia, where you lived. Yeah, I went to Temple in University. In and around Philadelphia. <laughs> yeah, I went to Temple University, and then I lived there for a few years after that. And there was, I, I mean, the first time that I watched it, where I rem- really it really sunk in for me was probably when I lived there because it was like, Oh, a movie that was shot in Philadelphia 
there's the Septibus and there's City Hall. And it's like you when you live in a city that isn't like New York or L.A., even though Philadelphia is a big city, when a movie is set there, mannequin, like you recognize it and it means something more. Uh, totally. As yeah. uh, living now in, in Seattle for sure. almost five years, I totally get that. And I haven't oh, yeah. like I haven't watched singles. I watched singles before we moved out here oh, to prepare. But and I haven't. Yes, I needed to know what what things were like and where I should go for coffee in the 90s, uh, in the <laughs> 90s. Yes. So I well, you know, I don't know. I was thinking I was like, oh, Seattle hasn't changed, but it has. But I, I totally get that. And I feel like next time I watch singles, because like the scene where uh, Campbell Scott and Kira Cedric get into the car accident Mm. is like um you know maybe a half a mile from my house and okay. the the movie theater that they go to before, like the movie theater where they sh- go to the movies is the movie theater around the corner from my house oh no way yeah well not to give too much information about your location we know a lot of people are out there trying to find you i well yeah good luck there's a <laughs> lot of movie theaters around the corner from a lot of houses well you just said exactly what movie theater was that you're talking about no, I just said it's the one around the corner from my house. I didn't say that. Right. No, but you said that the movie theater where they go to see the movie, that that's a Google oh, they don't show thing. You, I don't think they show you the name of the theater. All right. Whatever. Anyway. <laughs> no one will find me. No one's looking for you. Anyway, no so before me. we get to our ideas for a new life for this, uh, there was, I and I, I can find only very limited information about this. But there was a Trading Places, the musical that premiered in Philadelphia, or it was going to. I couldn't find very, I couldn't find much about it. There's an article on BroadwayWorld.com about it. It's uh, Philadelphia chosen for premiere of Trading Places, the musical. I honestly could not tell you. It says the it was written in response to the racially charged stories in the news during 2014-2015. Serves as an anecdotal antidote for police brutality, hate crimes, and subsequent riots. I could not find anything else about this. Another article that I found... and Oh, there was another one that came out, um, I want to say November of last year, that said that there was a Trading Places stage adaptation that was going to be coming to New York the next year. And we all know what happened the year after 2019. Yeah, here we are. 2020. Not a lot of... Um, uh, uh, stage plays going up. Oh, you know, though, I did have another little tidbit about this movie that I was interested to learn. And I didn't know if you had had seen this or not, but that apparently the film was originally conceived as a Gene Wilder, Richard Pryor movie. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Black and white. And can you imagine? I'm thinking about that. I'm imagining the Gene Wilder, Richard Pryor trading places. And I... Well, I really, really, really want to see that. Yeah. Because it sounds great. It would be such a different movie. And what I read was that Richard Pryor dropped out and when and then Eddie Murphy was hot. Time yeah. out. Oh. Just oh. before you go any further, what I read is that he didn't just drop out, but he couldn't do it because he lit himself on fire smoking crack. Oh, well, oh, was that was that the same? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was I was like, when did that happen? I thought that happened in the seventies. I, guess, I yeah. read somewhere that that's the reason why he couldn't do it. it oh, okay. You know, don't believe everything so, you read, as uh, Stephen Wright once told me. 
<laughs> um, oh man, Stephen Wright is awesome. So, uh, yeah, but but so when Richard Pryor, after Richard Pryor let him light, lit himself on fire, and they replaced him with Eddie Murphy, Eddie Murphy asked them to replace Gene Wilder. Mm-hmm. I first read this and I was like, my God, why? Gene Wilder is wonderful. And then he was like, he didn't want people to think that he was just like the fill-in for Richard Pryor. Right. Which he was, I think that Richard Pryor was supposed to be in 48 Hours originally. Oh, I I was not Again, something I else that I read. <laughs> I have not researched 48 Hours um, I, very much. I, I forget where it was that I read that. Maybe it's Wikipedia. I don't know. But I do uh, like 48 hours. Totally. Very much. Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, when they were unable to participate, blah, 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 blah. Maybe it was in something else. But anyway, he replaced Richard Pryor. And yeah, yeah. to make it not feel like he was just a Richard Pryor, Pryor replacement. Yeah. But that makes sense. Because, and I feel like a, a Gene Wilder, Eddie Murphy trading places, that's what it would have felt like was a a cover. A cover yeah. to... Uh, yeah. Yeah. A cover band. But I thought that was really interesting. And I, I'm a, a fan of the Gene Wilder, Richard Pryor collaborations, though I feel they like do? they're. They did four. I would say that four or all five. All together. Because yeah. it was Silver, Silver Streak. See No Evil, Hear No Evil. See no, Another You. Mm hmm. And there was another one in the 70s. Silver Streak. I'm really trying to to think about this without uh without looking it up. Well, I'm looking it up. So, Silver Streak, Stir Crazy, Stir Crazy, Stir yeah. Crazy. I, I got right. <laughs> like, right oh. the, yeah. No, because I remember like the the cover of it has like them in chicken costumes. So right. No, it's it's. I think it was a smart move, even though Eddie Murphy probably didn't have too much, you know, sway. He certainly had enough to be. To, he made a strong case, and I understand it to replace Gene Wilder, which I imagine it was probably difficult for some people to hear. We have to re- replace Gene Wilder <laughs> because hello, it's Gene Wilder. Probably would have been especially difficult for Gene Wilder. Yeah, who would sure. have brought something uh, in different to Winthorpe? And I think that totally. What we're, I think that what Dan Aykroyd brings to it is. He's waspier. So to waspier. use a yeah, yeah, he's such a, a strong character actor mm-hmm. that he just he goes all in on it. Whereas I feel like Gene Wilder, there's always some Gene Wilder in the performance, and that is often a strength when you're talking about the producers, Young Frankenstein, Willy Wonka, mm-hmm. Blazing Saddles. But what's awesome about Dan Aykroyd is that he can, he does. I think more than we, now that more than I've ever realized before. But I'm seeing this now in hindsight, not hindsight because he's still alive and working. But <laughs> yeah. that, but that Dan Aykroyd was, and this is I think what made him kind of seem like that. You know, the support. Because he's so, he's such a giver and he's going so much into the character. And he's such a solid, he's such a strong improviser and actor that what he's doing is always in balance. When you look at the balance of what he gives a very authentic performance where, you know, Valentine is definitely a character, you know? 
like you see Winthorpe's walking down the street in every city all the time. You know, they wear very fancy tailored suits. You know that they have big, important jobs. You know, they make a lot of money. You don't know what they do, but they all kind of have that look. And then you Mm -hmm. have Valentine and you can't have two people who are, I don't know, zany or like total characters. You need to have that balance. And Dan Aykroyd lends that. Unless you switch them, which is what, you know, it's like trade their places. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You take their face. Yeah. Also, I just want to mention the the wordplay of the title and trading and commodities trading only hit me just on this re- recent watch. That had never been something that that kind of crept into my mind. But it's yeah, nice. I, yeah. Well, there's there there's a lot of that going on, and there's a lot of things that I never yeah. noticed before that are really really great. Yeah. So one more thing. Uh, well, I was looking up to see if there had been any talks about Trading Places sequels or anything. I found this one article that confused me at first because I was like, is there, was there maybe something? And this is an article not about a, uh, what are you doing that for? Oh, are you referring to, there's maybe another movie that takes place in the same universe? No, 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 no. Uh, there's an irishtimes.com article. So I was like, all right, clearly on the cusp of Hollywood. Did you see this? No, but I'm just saying this is not the first time we've quote. I think Irish Times was where we got our Ethan Hawke interview for Explorers. Oh, so that's true. I- Irish Times is is one of our primary hey, contributors. Nice. Get a hold of us. We'll, we'll collab. Yeah. So Email there's us, an article. At gmail.com. Yeah, there's an article that's like uh, trading places too. And it's like Trading Places 2, the aluminum gold mine caper. And I was like, what is what is going on here? But then it's like there was this thing that happened that seems like it could be, it could have been, there's like, oh, this is a real thing that happened that seems like it would have been the plot line of another Trading Places movie. So let me just read a little bit of this. What if I told you there was a planned sequel to Trading Places, which involved Eddie and Dan, love that they call him Eddie and Dan, buying up an aluminum, sorry, aluminum warehousing company, drastically disimproving the service, causing long delays in delivery times, and taking advantage of loopholes and commodities trading regulations to effectively corner the aluminum market, making billions in the process. If that sounds like a draft plot for a movie, well, you'd be right. As it happens, the dysfunctional warehouse ruse wasn't the plot of a Never Made Trading Places sequel. It is, in fact, the plot of an insanely convoluted get-rich-quick scheme dreamt up by some giant brains at Goldman Sachs, and it has made the firm billions of dollars in the past three years at the expense of everybody who uses aluminum, which is all of us, basically. According to an extensive, uh, sorry, an exhaustive investigative report by David, oh boy, Name that looks Polish that I can't pronounce. In the New York Times, Goldman bought up a company called Metro International Trade Services in 2010, one of the biggest aluminum traders in the U.S., and took charge of 27 warehouses in the Detroit area. Sorry, warehouses in the Detroit area. Each day, a fleet of trucks shuffle 1,500-pound bars of the metal among the warehouses. They load in one warehouse, they unload in another, and they do it again and again. This industrial dance has been choreographed by Goldman to exploit pricing regulations set up by an overseas commodities exchange. So that that totally seems like some sort of like Hollywood scheme that would have been in a movie like this. Yeah. And it's a real thing. And I can't believe that we're not that people don't talk about these things more. That was the only other thing that I found about a 
Trading Places sequel. If you also want to talk about, uh, okay, what are you talking about that exists in the Trading Places universe? Well, I'm referring to the appearance of Randolph and Mortimer Duke in Coming to America. Oh my God. Were they? I did not yes. realize that. I think it's it's at the end and I feel like, what, um, I, I don't know if it's Eddie Murphy's character, but like, like gives them a dollar. Or something, oh my God. or they they find or they find money, or it's it's something where they're like, "We're back!" Oh my goodness, I it's been a while since I've watched it, but I'm sure yeah. that we'll talk about it sometime soon. No, I remember. Well, there's the you know we've got the Coming to America sequel, which Coming I'm guessing we won't. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so the, the, the thing that I was thinking that. of that could be considered to take place in the Trading Places universe is a. Uh, Television show that I worked on for a number of years, Trading Spaces, do 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 do, with Paige Davis. <laughs> clearly, clearly. Well, you know, the other thing I was wondering was if it took place in the Rocky. Um, well, that universe. was something that was very interesting about this movie is that they're doing a montage of Philadelphia and showing like Rodin sculptures because there's the Rodin Museum and like different Philadelphia landmarks, and they show the statue from Rocky Three, which came out what a year before this. Uh, three, three, no, three years before Rocky three. Ro- no, hold on. I think it came out. Did Rocky three come out in 83? No, I think 82. Yeah. So like a movie that had just come out, there's a statue made for the movie, which still stands in Philadelphia, but it seems like a notable enough landmark for them to include it in the Philadelphia montage in a movie that comes out the next year. Like, was that movie even out when they were making this movie? Hard to say. Well, and also I'm I'm sure yeah, so um this came out May uh, Rocky 3 came out May 28th, 1982. Right. Trading Places came out a, uh, a little bit over a year later, June. Okay. So um, it would have probably just recently come out when they were filming this. Yeah, but what I love and this brings us back to I mean it brings us to the opening credits, but what I love about the opening credits is how they show the, the two sides mm. of of Philly. Yeah. And I felt like that was kind of like where they show the Rodin, the, you know, highbrow art, and then there's the Rocky statue. Yeah. Totally. Which is what everybody in the, where I'm sure, you know, if you go to see, if you went to see Trading Places opening weekend in a crowded theater, especially in Philly, I doubt the Rodin sculpture got as many pops oh as my God. the Rocky statue. Oh my God, kidding me? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and I thought that it is a really great opening for a movie and, you know, something that even that would be done today the same way. It, except it wouldn't because I feel like the art, like that craft, like I was thinking about themes. I'm not talking. Earlier. Wait, oh. what do you mean the art? I mean, that, like just the art of an of like that type of an opening credit sequence. I just feel like well, it wouldn't in be movies, done the exact same way, but there would definitely be similar methods used to show the difference between yeah. the very two versions of the same city. Although they, you know, what's interesting, you know, what, what other movie that, that happens in Dragnet. Oh, does it really? I see. I haven't seen Dragnet very, in forever. Very similarly. Cause he uh, is talking about the two sides of Los Angeles. Those mm. who have it flaunt it. And those who aren't trying to, are trying to get it. And yeah. The haves and the have nots. Yeah. So that, I guess, leads us into our discussion of what would you do with this? Well, I would go prequel because mm. clearly this is not Randolph and Mortimer's first bet. This is not their first wager. <laughs> so I, 
I would, I think I would love to see a prequel, like maybe set in, I don't know, the, the depression. Like the, the, well, I was thinking the 1950s. Okay. <laughs> maybe not their first bet, but like as, cause they're the Duke brothers and they're from generations of, of, uh, they said there's always been a Duke on the stock, on the board of oh, the stock exchange. Yeah. So like they go way back, but just I, I'm thinking of a prequel about just these two privileged assholes who right. these brothers who can't help but get into these arguments and these and these debates and end up using other people in their schemes. Mm. So it so it, I I wouldn't want it to be like a remake but on the other hand you are making it would be a movie about two pretty despicable people and it i mean it would be interesting if it was told from the perspective of like i don't know uh someone who worked for the family okay like whether it's the family butler or like their their nanny hmm but something talking about like you know it, or like imagine like an like I don't know Maggie Smith to, who's now who's reminiscing about her maybe it's 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 Maggie Smith but the year it's 1983 and she's reading in the paper about how the Dukes have gone bankrupt and yeah. they've just gone they've gone pork belly up no Ooh. um and, well and, and just just a quick pause on that um so. $400 million is what they lose slash, I mean, they also owe. And the equivalent in today's money adjusted for inflation is just over a billion. So I feel like that still isn't, I feel like they would have between the two of them more than that. But they're off been, the... They're off the exchange. Like the way that they're acting is they've got nothing. So, and I feel like this would still be big news. So I'm imagining, you know, like Maggie Smith, like it opens with Maggie Smith, you know, reading this in in the paper. Love how it's just Maggie Smith. Of course it's Maggie. Yes. Yes. It's Maggie Smith. And, and it's just like, oh, serves them right. And, you know, the Duke boys were the most vile children that I ever cared for mm-hmm. if there were children that oh no it should be julie andrews because oh kind of like I, disney tie-ins well like it's like yeah well like mary poppins yeah. and but she's like those miserable i just want like her first line in it to be like those miserable little bastards yeah right got what was coming <laughs> to them so i would love or you could like the dukes as children as just like these little asshole children and like a, a a household staff that's just expected to deal with them. So you could have some type of, I don't know, like a, a good, bo- almost a like good boys style thing where it's just the Dukes, like just being little, little shits. Well, I'm just thinking of how it would be a trading places prequel and what if one of them what if the, what if it's like focusing on their parents who lose one of the kids in a bet or like maybe they <laughs> win somebody else's child in a bet and you know that's how they become brothers they're not actually well i guess they no they they never 
indicate that they are necessarily brothers by blood. Maybe one of them is one to the family by a trade. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like that also would be acknowledged unless it happened when they were babies. So, I mean, yeah, like you could imagine, I don't know, like Ray Fiennes as, you know, <laughs> the the Duke's father, like, yeah, right. this, you know, kind of a roguish cad and who's, who's you know, a habitual gambler. Mm hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think I think in terms of what you're going to do with this, because uh, I mean, I know like Eddie Murphy, and Dan Aykroyd are both are both still around and working. But uh, I just didn't I I couldn't really get with the idea of a sequel. No, I don't think a sequel. I was thinking more along the lines of remake, because as we've been saying, it's a story that works today just as well as it did then and i'm sure will in the future unfortunately but it's just the shitty reality uh, i hope i'm wrong i hope i'm wrong but and i i can't say i really have any groundbreaking ideas about casting although i feel like donald glover would probably be who i would want to to have the valentinish role and also i'd love to see somebody like adam mckay do it who loves to really handle these types of movies about especially finance corruption. Uh, yeah. That's that's oh man, does he love love that kind of stuff? Well, yeah, he knows about it. He knows about he's, it. That's kind of an he, understatement. Yeah, I mean he he knows his he knows his shit. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm trying to think of a casting for I, that, and I always I, I always get the, into the trouble of like age. Well, yeah. The <laughs> the thing is, I uh, I feel like somebody like Donald Glover is, you know, just young enough to be able to be in that in that position and i feel like for a winthorpe uh character i would see somebody like army hammer that's who i, I love, was thinking for I the love prequel army as a, that's who i was thinking for the prequel really? as a duke brother yeah i was like army hammer because he can do the humor i he think he really can I, and sorry to bother you he showed us that he can hang and uh and boy does he i think that he's really talented and his talents were you know wasted in a lot of ways that guy can can pull it out, I think. Plus, he comes from old money. So that's fitting. Yeah. yeah. No, that would work. Well, I mean, yeah. And I just, when I think about it, I'm just like, am I just saying that because of the Winklevoss thing? Because that's I, always what I think about. Well, with him. I think of somebody who can really pull off, you know, being a very, like, very waspy. Yeah. Like you were saying. Oh, he can well, pull off yeah. being waspy, but he also can be shitty you know i uh, uh -huh. what was that move that like spy movie he did with um geez i'm uh henry cavill was that the man from uncle oh the man from uncle yeah i uh, i feel like in that one he's you know he's still i don't know a uh a big strong fancy guy but he's also shitty and uh mm -hmm. i like seeing a fancy guy go shitty so yeah. anyway i i feel like uh he he'd be really good at that but I th I think that the the tendency in Hollywood would be to do kind of like replacing Richard Pryor with Eddie Murphy, whereas like Eddie Murphy would then just be replaced probably by somebody like Kevin Hart. You know, I feel like that what would if, be the instinct of Hollywood. What about? Oh, oh my God! Why am I blanking on his name? Um, would Michael Pena be too old? I think so. I love yeah. Michael Pena. I would love Michael Pena. Yeah, I feel like yeah. he'd be too old, but because you could, you don't have to keep it 
You don't have to, and I, I, I think that I would be inclined if I was or, in any way in in control of this. I would be inclined to keep it as more of a white person and black person kind of thing. Well, I, but then women, um, right? I'm but, wondering, right? But you know, the the idea of systemic racism, uh, plays into this story so well, and we are. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. I oh, should did explain you mean the Winthorpe role? I, I well, no. I was ex- I, what I was thinking was, you know, how do you get away from the iconic performances in this? Uh, how do you how do you present Trading Places without an audience that is both going to expect Eddie, like especially Eddie Murphy, mm-hmm. but also is not going to want just like the Eddie Murphy replacement. So like you said, not just putting, you know, it's Kevin Hart, Jay Farrow, right. um, you know, but why not then Robert Townsend take it in a different direction? Robert. Townsend. Oh man. <laughs> I, I would, I, Robert Townsend would be, I, what about Robert Townsend directing as a director? Yeah, that'd be great. I mean, he direct, he's worked with Eddie Murphy. Um, yeah. So I, I think that, changing because you're right you're right it doesn't have the same impact without it being a story about you know the white privilege and systemic racism right and yes there is systemic racism with other races 100 percent. i want to make sure that that is acknowledged oh yeah yes but i agree with you that that in terms of of the casting it should be it it should be kept that way mm-hmm. and but i think that you know i'm thinking about women who we could see in these roles and you just I, want to cast Carrie washington in something i know that you're always dying to get her in things well except <laughs> i wouldn't ca- except the thing is is that i wouldn't do that unless we were also swapping the the races for this mm-hmm. because Kerry washington i could see her as winthorpe more than uh than billy ray mhm that's true. I can't. I can't think of any off the top of my head. Can't think of like I like you said. Like if we were just casting without considering race, like Aquafina mm-hmm. would would be. You know, and I know that I I I throw out her name a lot, but if we are talking about black women who could play the Valentine role, Nicole Byer, I would. I just want to. I just want to oh, see her in anything. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. No. 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 I think. I feel like. Uh, I feel like Nicole Byer's kind of the right choice there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like. I also just want to yeah. see her acting in more roles, not just doing hosting things. Although she's wonderful at hosting, I just want to see her performing as characters. Yes. And I think this would be a. I. I think playing taking the Valentine role would be great. I think mm-hmm. she'd be amazing in it. And I think she, I think honestly her perform, like her presence and her performance would make it its own thing. Yeah, totally. So there you go. You got there it. We you go. figured it out. I don't know who the Winthorpe would be. I don't Blake lively. <laughs> yeah, well, that's very a simple favor to like, I don't know, you know. like Reese, Reese with Reese Witherspoon. Mm, probably old. aged out. You know, yeah. um, uh, you know, Anna Kendrick, if we're talking a simple favor, Anna you Ken- can totally oh. see her doing that kind of thing. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So it's, but, it's yeah, always Anna funny. Nicole, who would have good chemistry with Nicole Byer? I, I mean, uh, well, Anna Kendrick is great. I yeah. love her. 
Oh, I think that the chemistry comes in. Uh, well, it, it's also it's so hard to say. It's it's so hard to say without seeing them. You know. Oh, yeah. you know what I was just thinking about. I was like, and I was like, what if you if you had like if. Like, could could your Winthorpe still be a man if you change your Billy Ray to a woman? And I thought, oh, well, then it's bringing down the house. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Dan, I am noticing that we are at an hour and 24 minutes. <laughs> so all due respect. We're, it's no, so funny because yeah. I'm like, oh, we're already a half hour in and we, you know, we've already gone through the blah, 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 blah. And then, of course, you're an hour later. So, Dan, I think we should yes. talk about our next episode. And I'll keep it brief. In our next episode, we're going to be looking at 1990 at the Academy Award winner in 1990 for Best Picture, at Best Actress, a nom- and nominated for Best Supporting Actor, Mr. Dan Aykroyd. We are talking about Driving Miss Daisy. Yes. Yes, we are. I love the music from Drive Miss Daisy. It's awesome. Please email us, ruinchildhoodspod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Follow us on Instagram, ruinchildhoodspod, Twitter, ruined underscore pod. Dan, what do you have to say about Trading Places? About trading places, I hope that Eddie Murphy, Dan Aykroyd, and all of you have a good journey. Yeah, I certainly had one on that Amtrak ride. Good journey. Zedekai, Zedekai, my friend, neath the elms we sing our tones, we're brothers to the end. Muffy in the bathroom stall, <laughs> Margaret by the lake, Susan down in Whitley Hall, Constance on the make, Constance Fry, Constance Fry, anytime you'd call, Constance would fulfill your needs. Winter, spring, or fall. That was great. That was really great.